Hey, Brooke, how you doing? Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. It, like I just told you before we started recording that, um, for me, it's just like a um, weird surprise, happy surprise, but weird surprise that, you know, like I get booked like so many months in advance and, you know, like it creates kind of a awkward moment where I need to ask my guests, you know, where did you find me? And, you know, like, <laughs> how come, how come again, you wanted to be part of that? You know, like, anyways, you know, it's a weird thing. I should probably do more of my homeworks, but you know, like I love really when I started that project, I love the spontaneity of it. You know, like I love the fact that I, I am either surprised and shock or, or, you know, like every emotion that, goes through that microphone are raw and you know like they're, they're just as it happens you know like so i found that you know like when i was either nervous because you know like locally here you know like i i, I had guests that were people that were um either public figures or you know like and i felt like nervous that i wasn't prepared and but when i did that i kind of knew um i knew some of the surprises that were coming you know because i knew the life story and that became kind of a, you know, like almost like a fake emotion, like really, you know, like it, <laughs> and they work, you know, so yeah, you know, like, so, um, that said, um, really happy to have you on. Um, I, because of, you know, like we're probably, you know, like, we're, we're, I don't know how, how long we're going to be stuck in there, but you know, like I, I asked the same question for the past almost two years now. Um, and, and, you know, like, th th it's a twofold question. First one is, where are you located on this big, shiny planet? And and the second question and is, how has been the pandemic for you? Uh, I am in Reno, Nevada. Uh, you know, uh -huh. and the pandemic has been, like, both awesome and super annoying. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's probably not the most PC answer, but there, there are certainly some things that you know, I, I, I think are positives that's come all this. Of course, I, I wish that it weren't under the circumstance of illness and death, but I do like that I don't have to hug strangers anymore. Um, yep. I wasn't so down with that and how like I would go to a job interview and the person interviewing me would try and hug me and I just didn't understand why it was happening. So I'm kind of glad that that's gone. Uh, I also have been working from home since 2016. So in a lot of ways for me, I felt really prepared. Like I had been training for this and I didn't even know what I was training for. <laughs> so yes. I'm like, yes, all of, all of my weird job life is finally paying off. So, so that's, that's pretty great. Again, like I really hate that it comes on the heels of so much tragedy and grief. I've been through plenty of that in my, my life. I'm not trying to minimize it, but I do think it always helps to kind of, uh, to the extent that we can, you know, see what the gifts are in each situation. I, I hesitate to say the silver lining or looking on the bright side because it's so, it's so trite and cliche, but, uh, there really have been some positives. I mean, for me, it really clarified a lot of things in my life, you know, what I, where I wanted to be in the world physically, um, how I wanted to spend my time, who I wanted to spend my time with. And I think that those realizing that this this pandemic has given us all an opportunity to one, deal with our shit because it's triggered all of us in a variety of different ways. And yep. that's fascinating to watch, less fascinating to go through when it's yourself. But we all have the opportunity to do it, whether or not we're all doing that is a different, is a different com conversation. Um, but it's been interesting to see what has come up within me. Also, what hasn't come up. And, 
you know, there's a lot of things about this that I, I really don't feel triggered by. And I'm pretty grateful for that because it, it indicates a sense of healing there that maybe wasn't there, you know, five, six years ago. Um, but then, you know, there's also, especially now we're 18 months ish, uh, you know, past the start of this thing and it's really starting to feel pretty tedious and, you know, we know a lot more and there are a lot more options now. So the fact that a lot of the conversation feels a little bit like it did last year is a little frustrating, but, uh, you know, still, I guess last year, this time last year, we, we would all be so grateful to be where we're at, where we're at now. So yep. I guess it helps to keep it in perspective. And it, it, you know, and, and pretty much the reason why I asked that question is, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm 16 years sober and you know, like the, so my, my, the origin of the podcast is me just, you know, I was actually looking for a conversation around you, know, like people that overcame and were more casual, you know, cause I had kind of two end of the spectrum when I did my research, there was one end, which was super niche, like, like really like the deep end of one anonymous meeting somewhere Southwest us, you know, like, which was like, <laughs> you know, like any, first of all, the, the audio quality was shit. And the second thing was, you know, like if I didn't understand the lingo, I would be lost in within 30 seconds. You know, like it was just too much. At the other end of the spectrum, you had like the full-blown yoga class taking namaste vegan folks that would just <laughs> yeah. like, oh, but sobriety is so trendy. You know, I was like, oh, fuck that. You know, like that's not what I, you know, that's not me. You know, like I'm I'm not like that. I'm I'm, you know, like I I have bills to pay, you know, believe it or not. You know, like there's like life is life is kind of a shit show, right? You know, like it's a happy place, but you know, like it's, it's, you know, like it's stress, it's hot, it's highs, it's downs. It's, you know, like it's a lot of things. So like listening to that almost too polished, squeaky clean guy telling me how I should live was just like, ah, oh, fuck off. You know, like, I, you know, like I couldn't mm -hmm. stand it. Um, and, and therefore, you know, like I started a podcast and by, by talking to people, um, I realized that, you know, like there were way more impacts, um, and, you know, through the angle of almost like a PTSD like symptoms mm -hmm. of people relapsing, going into deep depression, deep anxiety attacks, uh, even, uh, suicidal thoughts, um, and that's why it is why I asked the question, you know, like a lot of people tell me that, you know, like, like you said, you know, like it's, there's good, there's bad, but you know, like I, okay, I'm fine. But it happens that, you know, like I, I spoke and, and, and recorded with, you know, with people that just told me like, it, it's really tough. You know, like it is, mm -hmm. it is, um, it is, it drives anxiety a lot. It, you know, like the loneliness is unbearable. Um, some someone said last week uh i think i was talking with someone that told me that within the 15 or 18 months that they didn't see their grandparents they mm -hmm. almost uh grew 10 years older mm -hmm. you know like when, yeah. they, when they looked at them they're like holy shit okay you know like that's a, uh, um you know like I, it, it 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 hit them that you know and that's why i asked a question so have you have you witness that have you seen that you know like like in, in your entourage or like your friends family of of kind of the 
because what we're at the what they consider the fourth fifth where i don't even follow yeah. that anymore but you know like, yeah. but you know like i have like a guess that by the time we're going to be done with the quote-unquote virus and and trust me you know like i'm not in the conspiracy you know like that none of that you know like i don't freaking care you know like i'm you want me to put a mask i put the fucking mask if i can go to the restaurant with my wife you know like if you know you want me to get vaccinated three four five twelve times fuck it you know like i'm gonna get the shot you know like i'm for me it's just like what's gonna change you know, like you, you're gonna really like you know like i i had a long discussion with some folks yesterday yeah and, and it was just like you're really gonna get like the if they ask you for a third shot i'm like man i just want to travel you know like what do they want you know like i mean at the end of the day you know like i i, I want to travel i want to enjoy life you know like i'm if it if it's about so i'm not conspiracy um at all but um i have a guess that there's going to be like a maybe like a six seven eight wave that's going to be like almost post-traumatic um like like a post-mortem event of trauma of people that's going to have to get treated for you know like like the post-pandemic trauma of that mm -hmm. um and have you seen that in in some of the friends or family that you going through that you know like these moments uh, you, you know, I, I mean, I'm quite sure that there are going to be people who are who are never going to recover from this. Um, that 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 is that is very clear to me, uh, and in various levels. But I think, to me, I think that all of that is beside the point, and it's kind of what I see being really missed. Um, and I don't want to say being missed from the conversation because, quite frankly, as a collective, I don't think we're we're ready to have this conversation because if we were, we would be having it. But instead where we're at as a collective is uh, thriving off of fear and being really concerned about what other people are doing and boiling everything down into very black and white arguments. We've completely lost any sense of nuance on all levels. And um, we're all, or I would say as a collective, we're really getting quite uh, uh, enmeshed in, in that level that I think, the bigger point of this is being missed. And, and by that, I mean, I think there's a need here for people to turn inward and to dis discover, you know, what it is that, you know, first of all, what it is that's trigger triggering you about this, right? Because in, in my opinion, the point of being alive is to express ourselves, you know, basically our soul's full light. That's our point of being alive. And when we're not expressing our, you know, full light, uh, and our soul's not able to kind of shine into the world, that's when we get all these issues like depression and anxiety and addiction and uh, anger, fear, all these things that we're seeing seeing in mass right now. And so I think that this has really given us an opportunity to say, okay, well, like no matter what your issue was, it came up and it was challenged over the past 18 months. What concerns me is I don't see a lot of people really having the self-awareness to even understand that that's what's happening to them, that they're not able to kind of reflect and say, oh, what's being challenged here? Is it, is it um, the fear of other people? Is it the fear of losing my freedom? Is it uh, the fear of being told what to do? Is it the fear of losing my job, my money, my finances, of, of death, you know? of having all my beliefs challenged, of having people who are different than me, you know, over overtaking my status, right? I mean, there's a dozen and a half ways that people are being triggered throughout 
right well, 2020 and now going into 2021. And I'm most interested and most fascinated and have the most respect for the people who are aware of that and have taken this time to kind of look around at the topography of their life. And they're saying, oh, shit, like there are some problems. And you know what? No one else is going to fix this for me. And, you know, a vaccine clearly isn't going to fix this. If a vaccine was going to fix it, we'd all be back to normal right now because it's available. And that was what they said, you know, the whole time. But clearly we're not going back to normal or, you know, whatever we defined as normal based on these arbitrary guideposts. So if you can't trust the outside world to bring you what you think you need, then the only option is to start looking inside yourself and to create what you need within 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 the realms of your world. And so for me, it's been interesting to watch my friends and family, some of whom seem to get that. And they're much they're fabulous people now. Even I mean they, they were fabulous before, but like the growth I've seen out of people in such a short period of time has been uh, astounding. On the other hand, I also see people who just seem to be digging themselves further and further into a hole because they're so that inflexible. They refuse to look yes. into it. Yeah. They're yes. refusing to look at it. Or, or they fall into finding comfort in messed up stuff. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, like I, all I had you know, like in mind was like kind of almost like a trigger generation, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I, I don't want to go back to what my parents and my grandparents were, but it was a, it was definitely a much tougher skin generation before us. You know, someone, you know, told me about, you know, like the uh, Mad Men, for example, which, you know, is outrageous to today's standard. I get it, you know, again, but he was referring to, there's a scene where they go picnic and by, by the time they finish it, they just stand up, take the, yeah, you know, and just throw it out, <laughs> throw it out just there. Just throw the like, garbage to, everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and just that is, you know, crazy to, to imagine, but at the same time, it seems that, like, when I say the trigger generation is that some people find comfort in going down that rabbit hole. And because of the internet, you're going to find a club, you know, and I'm using club with big air quotes, but, you know, like you're going to find other people that things are like your crazy hypothesis. Where even when I was younger... There was no way, I, you know, I couldn't get online. Online didn't exist, you know, so I had to go to the library and obviously whatever messed up idea I, I had and in terms of theory, I couldn't find a book that would just confirm and validate me. Mm-hmm. And so now, whatever you, you know, like whatever you think or whatever your ther- theory is, someone has probably already thought of it and has like a club that's going to, you know, just bring you down that hole. You're right. You know, like Bill Gates sits in the fucking vaccine. You know, like you're like, what? You know, <laughs> you know, um, you know, or or whoever, you know, like and, and something just like almost outlandish. Um, and that worries me a lot. You know, when when you're when you get when you get comfort in sharing with the world that you're shocked by something for example it's not you know like i don't think that that is the strategy 
Uh, no, I agree. And I, I, I think that this is, I think that these are, we're basically going through kind of global growing pains right now. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's kind of like you just gave a whole bunch of toddlers a box, a box of matches and said, figure it out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think that in the future, we'll know not to give toddlers matches and it, it's going to be so much more in like, you know, the kids Gen Z and whatever generation comes after them. Right. Like they're, they're living in such a different world, but um, where they're going to, they're growing up with this. I mean, you know, I, 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 I heard something today again, this is, this is a little bit hearsay. Cause I, this is just from a Russian friend of mine said that they're, they teach kids in Russia that it's easy to hack American Twitter accounts. Okay. I don't know what she means by that by any means, but my point is, is that I think there's kind of a level here of, you know, either you can either get on the train because it's, it's left the station um, or you can, you know, try and run behind it, but you're going to fall behind. And we're going to start teaching people and kids more about what it means to live both online and offline. Um, if we have any brains about us, uh, hopefully we will. I think we will kind of readjust eventually. This to me just feels very much like the Wild West. No one knows what's happening, but and the pandemic is just kind of highlighting all of that, right? I mean, if there's any one yeah. thing that I really appreciate about this pandemic is that it kind of just pulled the bullshit veil away. We can see everything now. Like, and, and there's, there's, to me, there's a weird bit of comfort in that. Like, there's kind of, as much as it feels a little bit more comfortable, maybe to be able to go put your head in the sand and pretend that everyone's good and everything's all right and all and whatnot. I think it's actually a lot healthier to be able to see all the shit and to be able to like look around and say, okay, this is what we have to deal with, right? Because you can't fix a problem if you don't know it exists. So I really appreciate that a lot of this stuff is coming up. And I think it's just really difficult to see how it's going to shake out uh, from a bird's eye view because everyone is just stuck in it right now. And um, I think you're right. You know, like there's, there's, um, it's a dead end. You know, like there's no limit to that. You know, like so so if we don't teach ourselves or, you know, like teach the next generation how to behave, how to respond, how to, you know, um live with um, you know, kind of that 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 the biggest library that history mankind has ever encountered with mm -hmm. the best and worst and with the you know like the the craziest and the most brilliant um content um i mean i think you know like it's it you know like it it can't end well you know like so so we we have like like you said you know like if there's an ounce of brain in humanity you know like we we need to you know we need to teach and learn how to uh i mean get a, you know as asap a critical judgment because it's too much information, you know, like, so, mm -hmm. so it's easy to, you know, like just, just YouTube, you know, by, by looking at, you know, the instruction to do a barbecue, you, you end up like, you know, you know, you end up thinking that, you know, like the hurts flat, you know, like something's not normal, right, right. you know, <laughs> but, but I'll um, also say that there's a level, like at the end of the day, we all create our own reality. We all live in our own individual world and, Everyone else is just a guest star. And there's a point here where, again, all like so much of this is I, I see people looking out outside of themselves for 
either the answers or for something to blame their problems on or the world's problems on. And there's a point I think at which you have to say, you know, it's not good for me to get on YouTube and go down a YouTube rabbit hole. So maybe I need to figure out a solution. Well, guess what? There are Chrome extensions that actually block all that fluff. So you watch the YouTube video you're trying to watch on the barbecue and you don't see any of the stuff off to the right, right? Like there's just, there's a level of kind of creative ingenuity here that I think people need to do better at instead of, you know, kind of, they don't re people don't realize they're being trapped in that they're being pulled on puppet strings by a lot of this stuff because it seems so harmless. And so there's just got to be a level of individuals saying, okay, I'm not going to interact with this anymore in that way. And that doesn't make me, you know, it doesn't make me someone who's not plugged in. It makes me smart and it makes me preserve my own energy because when you can preserve your own energy and you can nourish yourself, you can better take care of the people around you. So I don't see that really being put into the narrative either. It's all about quote unquote being informed, which I think is just, you know, it's an endless, it's an endless treadmill about yeah. trying to get more and more information. It's never going to work out for you in the end. And, and it's, it, it's funny, Brooke, that, you know, like while you were talking, I was, you know, kind of referring to in my, in my head, you know, about it before all of that, you know, before social networks and, you know, like, and, 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 that goes way back because, you know, like my first interaction with a computer plugged in a modem, there was like built-in board system that were like mm -hmm. forums and you could just like passively interact with people. Um, but before all that, if you taught crazy or behaved crazy, you would end up alone. And you got banned. You, you got banned <laughs> or, or, or you ended up alone, you know, like in the physical world, if you, if yeah. you, if you act like a, prick you end up alone mm -hmm. it, on on the other side in the digital world you're never alone even though mm -hmm. you're always alone you're never alone because you're going to find someone and some ones that thinks like you mm -hmm. and that thing and i think that this and this is another um you know a kind of major problem of that because you know like in the physical world you know like after a few times that you know like you get kicked off the kicked off out of parties you get kicked off out of you know like like the family gathering because you say crazy shit you know <laughs> mm -hmm. you know you're like wow you know like uh, maybe it's me you know and um you don't get that in the digital uh, digital world at all that's a very good point i it's never occurred to me but it's no. extremely <laughs> it, well, true it just <laughs> exactly well it just you know like my brain just like popped that saying wow yeah i mean like if I, you know, like, like even me as, you know, like a, a, you know, like a drunk, you know, like if I started acting out and, you know, like wanted to fight and, you know, like, or crying and act like, like, you know, like a moron, I wouldn't, you know, like I would have stopped being invited where I could just like troll like a live Instagram being freaking hammered and I would get, you know, listeners and viewers and, you know, like, we're like, yeah, rat dude, you know, like just, you know, <laughs> nail that next beer bit buddy you know i could <laughs> you know <laughs> you know i would have an audience for that where yeah. you know anyways you know like it's a well kind of a long <laughs> parenthesis but you know like i i that just had it just occurred to me that you know like you're never alone even though you're like i said you know like you're always pretty much alone but you're always gonna find someone like like someone that's gonna listen or be quote unquote a fan of whatever messed up 
theory you got, you know, like, and, and right. I think that's a, that's another problem. And, and, and it's false companionship too, right? Because it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very easy, you know, we, we build, we build, we build our own, uh, image of a person very easily based on what someone says on the internet. So it, it, on the one hand, it makes, might make you feel less alone in that moment, but when the computer gets turned off, nothing has been built there. Nothing has been built that is going to actually help you or sustain you. And I imagine like, you know, I think it might be going a little far to call it an addiction, but it's sort of similar in the sense of, you know, there's the, uh, there's the reward and then the, and then the crash. Um, oh, there's but if parallel, it's happening, there's parallel to yeah. that big time, big time. Yeah. And when it's happening on an emotional level though, like people just don't understand what's happening until they, until they really hit a serious wall and then you, they don't understand how they got there. Well, starting off with, you know, like how, you know, easy you get your phone burning in your pocket. If you got two minutes, you know, like mm -hmm. if there's, two free minutes um it almost feels like it's burning in your pocket you know, like so so there's definitely you know like it, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind and for an addictive personality like mine i mean i'm all in you know like i mm -hmm. you know and and you know like i i kind of embrace that you know like it's something that if it um yeah, I was about to say if it's bad or not for me and my family. I mean, at some point, you know, like someone close to you, your wife or or your parent, you know, she's going to say, can you drop it? You know, like you, we're actually having dinner together. And, you know, like so so there's, yeah, you know, like you, you want to be careful not to fall into that addiction. But it, it, those are addictive activities, no doubt in my mind. Absolutely mm -hmm. no doubt in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be back to my regular schedule by asking you um, pretty much to rewind the tape of your life story to bring me wherever you want me to go back. You know, like, uh, you know, like usually uh, a lot of people bring, bring me back in their childhood, um, in their teens, um, so that they can kind of draw me a, a bit of a family picture um, just so that I'm, you know, situated, situated in, and, you know, like we're going to just like move along from there. You know, um, there are impactful events, you know, most of my guests in their childhood. So bring me back, Brooke. Sure. Um, I mean, I actually think I'm going to bring you back to the original reason why I reached out because uh, your podcast is called Cold Turkey. And very often, you know, Cold Turkey is, you know, it's associated with stopping something quickly, but usually some sort of, you know, drug or alcohol or whatever. And, um, yep. my story is, you know, similar and different, you know, I, I have never struggled with any, uh, alcohol or recreational drug addiction, but I was, um, medicated with a cocktail of antidepressants when I was 15 years old after my father suddenly passed away. And I remained on that same cocktail of drugs for 15 years. So from age 15 to 30, and around my 30th birthday, at that point, I had been living in New York City. I lived on a high rise uh, in Manhattan. And, you know, from the outside, I, I think I appeared to be doing pretty well, but I was uh, still severely depressed. I was having suicidal thoughts. And uh, one day as I was <laughs> leaning out my window, looking at the sidewalk below me, just kind of thinking like how, how long it would take to hit the ground, 
um, it occurred to me that I had spent half my life and my entire life on these drugs and that if they were working the way they are advertised, I wouldn't be calculating the velocity of a body falling to the sidewalk. And that was a moment where I kind of, you know, I guess it was one of my aha moments where I, I pulled myself back in through the window and realized that, you know, at the very least, uh, the drugs I was on were not serving me at all. And so perhaps I needed different ones. And then there was this, un- there's this underlining curiosity of kind of wondering, like, like, who the hell am I if I'm not on these drugs? I mean, I had been drugged my entire adult life. I had no frame of reference for who I was as an unmedicated person uh, since I was a kid. And it really just didn't sit well with me at all. And so also at the same time, um, you know, right around the same time that happened, I, I got a sudden opportunity to travel around the world for a year. And I realized that, you know, one, I was having a lot of memory problems at the time, which... Uh, I was starting to connect the dots and thought that they were associated with the drugs I was on. And also, um, so I didn't want to travel around the world and forget it because that's what was happening in my life. And then also just the logistics of like, how do you get six drugs in a suitcase and get them regularly refilled, uh, you know, in places like Cambodia or the middle of nowhere, Croatia, I just didn't trust that I would be able to get those drugs. So I had about six months uh, in between this realization and when I was supposed to get on a plane. So I saw a psychiatrist and started getting off all these drugs, some of which I had to go cold turkey for uh, what I now know are just bad psychiatric practices. But at the time, I didn't know that. And apparently neither did the doctor I went to see. So there was some cold turkey involved there that probably made the process significantly more difficult than it needed to be. But it was what it was. And as a result, I, I spent about a year in, in very severe antidepressant withdrawal, which is not something that is, is talked about uh, publicly. And so my, my mission at this point is to talk about it and to help people understand what, hap- what can happen when you get off these drugs and how to avoid that. And uh, that as much as I, you know, I don't want to put all doctors in the box by any means. The bottom line is most of them just aren't educated on this because they can't be. There's been very little research up until recently. And so I just hope to um, spread some knowledge about this so other people don't go through what I've been through and what hundreds of people, thousands of people around the world are currently experiencing and just feeling completely and totally helpless. Uh, it's not something that is, that is, you know, there's no AA for us. There's no Narcotics Anonymous for us. People don't know that there are other people going through this. And very often people are just actually diagnosed with other psychiatric disorders and medicated even more when in reality they're having a reaction to their body trying to get these drugs out of their system. I've got a ton of questions for you, Brooke. Um, If you don't mind, what was your upbringing like, you know, like before that dramatic event at 15? I was, I'm an only child, uh, you know, upper middle class. We were comfortable, but certainly not extravagant. Um, I was always very ambitious and high performing both in athletics and, uh, I, I, I got great grades in school, but I wasn't as motivated to do that. It was hard for me to do that, but you know, I was just expected to, you know, I grew up in the nineties. I was expected to, you know, take honors classes and do well on the SATs and get into a good college. And, you know, it was kind of like, if you will do all those things, then you're going to get a job that 
is respectable and is going to give you the life you want and then everything will be fine. Like I don't really remember in my upbringing. Um, so, so no, basic, what? No, exactly. I was about to say normal. What is normal? But, um, <laughs> you know, like, so a normal upbringing, childhood, um, were you the outgoing type, the introvert, extrovert, like leader of your, you know, like your group class, um, with, you know, like, or kind of fitting in the middle of all that? How, you I, know, I like, mean, how, I'm sorry. I would say that I was, I mean, I'm definitely introverted. I am a fierce competitor, so I might not say a lot, but I will be plotting how to beat <laughs> everybody around you. me. Destroy. Yes. <laughs> no matter, no matter what the event. Um, and that continues to this day and I am proud of it. I think it's great and it's fun. Uh, <laughs> and, but I, you know, I, I never, I, I'm not a very social person. I wasn't that social growing up. I have, you know, I'm much more of a couple close friends rather than a lot of friends. I never played team sports. Um, you know, my, you know, we had our, you know, we had our family problems and my, my father was a total character i mean you know you couldn't he was he was just one of those people who just had kind of the angel and devil on his shoulder at all times and i knew he always loved me at the end of the day there was never any of his anger or rage ever directed at me but it still existed so but it was just it felt normal at the time i mean so much of our you know so much of our stories about our childhood we really filter that through an adult lens of someone who's like trying to look back and see where it all went wrong I don't really love that approach. I think it's important to look back in your childhood and understand that those experiences have shaped you and influenced your decisions. But the bottom line is like, I mean, I thought that everybody's dad had a really, really bad temper and, and was kind of like yelled a lot and swore a lot. And I just thought that thought that's how dads were. Like it didn't, not until later that I was like, okay, maybe that's not normal and maybe I need to work through it. But <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I didn't feel unlo unloved. I didn't feel unsafe. Uh, and I, you know, I'm lucky to not have felt those things, but you know, when he, he died suddenly when I was 15 and, uh, can I ask what happened? Brooke? Can I ask uh, what he happened? Had, yeah, he had pancreatic cancer, but we didn't know. So basically he thought he had an ulcer. And so he, you know, like he had some of the signs, like he had lost some weight and um, he went in to go get a couple tests, like the barium tests for ulcer and, you know, like ultrasounds and all that jazz. And basically they're just kind of like, eh, we think we need to go in there and fix the ulcer. I don't know how they do that. So when they took him into surgery, they opened him up and it turned out that he had a grapefruit size mass and he never came out of surgery. So you're 15. You, you know, like how long has it, you know, has it been that, you know, like he had like these stomach issues or these, you know, like these, you know, um, whatever, oh, you know, like matter of months. I mean, and no one thought that there was something like serious going wrong. He didn't look, you know, he dropped a little bit of weight, but he was happy about that because he was porky. Uh, <laughs> and so yeah. he thought it was just, you know, living a little bit of a healthier life and um, he was happy. He didn't. He didn't turn into skin and bones. There was really no, I mean, we, my mom and I were actually on vacation when it happened because uh, we thought he was just going in for a routine ulcer surgery. So we were in Europe visiting family when he went into surgery. And so we had to brush home from there. So like it wasn't on anyone's radar that this was what was going on. 
in any any capacity. So you're 15. Um, you're 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 on vacation. I'm I'm assuming your mother gets a call, um, mm-hmm. and the end, right? Um, yeah, they kept him alive long enough, like on life support, long enough for us to fly back and say goodbye in the hospital. But there was no conscious life there. What is your, um, you know, like kind of what is your, because, um, you know, like to get uh, prescribed, um, you know, like and, and anti-anxiety medication or antidepressant, um, did you, did you shut down kind of, you know, like you said, you are already an introvert. So what were the signs for your mom to just say, well, you need to be prescribed something, you know, like, you know, I mean, I, so I have, uh, very little memories of that period of my life. It, and there's, there's, there's about four or five years where things are almost gone or real fuzzy for me. So most of okay. what I've gathered from this is secondhand. Uh, but what I do know what started happening is um, I I mean, I was also a ballet dancer, serious ballet dancer at the time. So, you know, eating disorders and ballet go hand in hand. So I started to develop an eating disorder that wasn't I mean, I was aware that it was happening at the time. I also didn't care. It very much for me felt like it was an, an effort to kind of take up less space in the world. I think I was feeling really overwhelmed by the amount of attention that was suddenly on me because it's really weird to be the only kid in your high school of 2000 people who suddenly lost a parent. So like there was, and I was an only child. So all of the focus was on me and how I was doing. And, um, I don't, I think I didn't like that. So I had this kind of almost instinctual instinct to be less space, to take up less space in the world. And so that started happening. I know that my mom was concerned about that. Um, they, my mom sent me to a child psychologist at some point. And basically what happened is the child psychologist broke my trust within the first meeting because she, she minimized my eating disorder by telling me that she once had a client who only ate white things and that that was a real eating disorder. And I was kind of like in my head, I'm like, are you, are you, are you fucking serious? I'm 15 years old. Like, like, I know that this is going on. I just did what I was supposed to do and told you told you what was going on and you brushed it off because it wasn't as serious or weird as your other client who only ate potatoes. Like, <laughs> so at that point I was like, you're done. So I basically just didn't talk to her for about three, four months. And you know, I wasn't, I was also still 15, right? Like I was barely in puberty. No, no, no 15 year old girl wants to talk to their mom about anything. So like throw that yeah. on top of the mix. I wasn't exactly communicating with her. So it got to a point where my mom said that she just felt really like she didn't know what to do. I mean, she had just lost my father. She was afraid that she was going to lose me um, as well because I was getting sicker and sicker. And she conferred with the other adults in her life. And they just kind of, you know, it was like Anna, like Prozac and uh, a bunch of these drugs had just been approved for use in children and teens. And this was 2001. And so it was like, well, take her to the psychiatrist that we recommend in town. And he just put me on him. And I think for me, it was like, I was a really good kid. I was, I wanted to please the people around me. I wanted to do what I was told. Like no one could have foreseen the trajectory that this ultimately led to when I was hanging out my window. Right. Like it wasn't, it wasn't an if then, then this, but 
but I just did what I was told. And so if they told me to take NyQuil when I had a cold at night, and then they told me to take an antidepressant because I was depressed because my father died, well, what else was I supposed to do? Like, I just took it. And the thing is, is that there's always conversations about how to put these on people on these drugs. There's almost never a conversation on how to take people off them. There was never a conversation with me at any point with any of the professionals that I saw over a course of 15 years. So it was introduced to me at such a formative age and an age that, you know, then led to about 10 years of quote unquote bad timing. Like if we had ever talked about going off the drugs, like sometimes my mom would suggest it and I would say, well, it's bad time. You know, I have to take the SATs. Then I have to apply for college. Then I have to move into college and then there's college. Then there's graduating, right? It was like a series of events where every year had something really big. And so by the time I moved to New York in my twenties and was, you know, a fully formed adult, then, then life happens. It's the same thing. There's never a good time. And so it just kind of, again, it's just one of those situations where you, 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 you get knocked off by one degree. And if you don't address it, you're off by 45 degrees, 10 years down the line, and you don't know how you got there. So it didn't feel big at the time, but it turned into something big later on. Hey, you, you kind of don't prepare for it, right? Like you, 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 well, you have you no can't. control, <laughs> you know, like you have no control over, um, like you're, you're a minor. So, you know, like you're just mm -hmm. like, you trust yeah. adults, you're like, yeah, sure. You know, like it must be, you know, like it must be the right thing to do. Um, and then it becomes kind of almost like, um, treadmill, right? You know, like you, you don't know what it is being off of that treadmill and therefore that you know like that becomes your new normal right right especially at the age i was because that's an age that already has so much uh transformation like physical and mental transformation as it is and so when i was coming of age on those drugs and going through puberty through those drugs like the entire lens of my world as an adult was created while it was medicated i think it can be very different for people who are you know fully formed adults who start to take these drugs because they have a frame of reference of who they are and how they think as a fully formed person. When you're, when you're a kid and you're a teenager, you don't. And I think that it's, I think it's a real risk to build a child's identity around a diagnosis because that is the identity that they're going to bring with them into their adulthood. And it's, I think it's much more difficult to then in your thirties or your forties, or in some cases I, people call me there in their sixties and they have a similar story to mine. The fear of who they are without these drugs is far worse than the fear of getting off them or the depression or the suicidal thoughts. Like they are, they have completely lost who they are and we don't know how to help people write themselves when it comes to that like we just don't know how to do it it's not a conversation we have it's not something people even have words to talk about like what does that mean to not have any idea like what you like to eat for dinner or what music you like to listen to when you're 65 because you got off these drugs and suddenly your whole world is different it is completely uh it completely throws people off whatever foundation they thought they had built that turns out it was not that foundation at all, that that was just smoke and mirrors. And, and then you, at 30, you get that opportunity to travel, um, six months 
prior, you, you, you kind of take that decision. So that means that when you embarked on that first flight for that, mm-hmm. you know, like that, that journey, you still were um, going through um, the, you know, like the suppression uh, symptoms, right? With, with withdrawal. Yeah. So um, my, uh, there's, mm, Antidepressant withdrawal affects everyone a little bit differently. Some people are not on drugs for very long and they have really severe withdrawal effects. Some people can be on them for a long time and they don't have as severe effects. And so there's um, what what we do tend to notice is that the longer you're on them, the longer you need to take to get off of them. And sometimes the more difficult it can be. So for me, I was on them so fast and I was actually taken off them quite fast because my doctor didn't have any idea of what she was talking about. And again, I don't know if I can fault her because it just, I think some people just, they make mistakes out of ignorance because it's just not what they studied when they went to their last medical medical conference, right? It was kind of early in this conversation. So um, I don't fully have blame for her as much as it just was what it was. But so I was taken off them pretty quickly. So I had a lot of really physical and uh, a lot of rough physical side effects and emotional side effects as well. I mean, you know, like my vision changed, my hearing changed, um, my taste changed. So the type of food I could eat changed. Uh, I had, I developed something called nodular vasculitis, which is basically an inflammation of the blood vessels. So basically my skin and my blood vessels became so stressed and inflamed that I couldn't keep clothes on my body uh, when it was at its worst. And I had all these weird bumps and bruises and it was really quite scary. So there was all the physical side effects of that. So it was just kind of uncomfortable to be in my body. And then there was the emotional side effects as well. I mean, you know, if there's any one thing I've learned from this experience and that I've learned from talking to other people who've been through uh, what I've been through is that all the reasons why you were put on antidepressants in the first place don't go away when you get off of them. They're still there. They've just been suppressed for 15 years or 20 years or five years or whatever it is. So you have to deal with all that. And what happens is it's like if you, you know, you're wearing armor and you pull off the armor and then it's all waiting there for you. So it comes at you all at once. And not only are you not fully aware of like how to process emotion because you haven't really had to because your emotional edges are numbed on both the, you know, the good and bad side of the equation. Everything feels really intense. The depression can become overwhelming. The anxiety can become overwhelming. Couple with the neurological side effects and the physical side effects, people think they've lost their like literally going crazy, or then that's how they get uh, diagnosed with other mental disorders like bipolar is common um, or schizophrenia. When in reality, it's just kind of like all the shit they haven't been dealing with for the amount of time that they are medicated is still there and it comes back with a vengeance all at once. And so I think we uh, that was what was happening to me when I first got on the plane is I was by no means healed. I was ve- I was in a really, really rough place. And the first place I went to was Malaysia. And uh, one of my biggest um, withdrawal side effects is a sensitivity to noise and sound. And so okay. <laughs> going to a developing country was like, I mean, I was, I, I, I was, I was a mess constantly. I, I just, it was, it was, it was really, it was really awful and I wouldn't recommend it. But, um, you know, kind of like I mentioned at the beginning of our talk where I, I really do believe most of these things happen to us in order to give us an opportunity to heal it and to clear it. And so for me with, you know, the noise being such an effect or such a factor in my day-to-day life, I had to, you know, I was working with my counselors and my people and whatnot, but I had to learn to 
you know, I, my choice was I could stay there and I could continue to remain in this amount of pain or I can get out. And so eventually I just chose to get out and it was the best decision I could have made. But, um, you know, even though it was something so physical, I still had to take control of the situation. In, in that case, taking control of the situation was getting out of Kuala Lumpur, which is what I did. And so traveling, it was very fascinating for me because I was in one, one, uh, a new country every month. And so, <laughs> you know, it's like, you couldn't write a better book. It's like each month had a theme, right? Uh, <laughs> Malaysia happened to be all about noise for me. Um, there was in Thailand, there was a lot about kind of emotional anxiety. And when I was in Cambodia, it was about, um, it was kind of about accepting new people and, and, and the fear of the unknown. And it just kind of each month had a little bit of a different theme for me. And by the end of it, it was like, I came out a completely transformed person because I think on some level I was just accelerating through healing because I had to, I was not, I didn't have any of my support system. I was away from my home and I didn't, I couldn't go around to Walgreens and just say, I can't do it anymore. Give me the drugs back. So I was forced into healing and I couldn't go back to the U S so it, for me, I was able to make it happen really fast. And I'm actually pretty grateful that I didn't have, I just took, I, 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 my whole life was gone. I was left with nothing but myself. And that enabled me to spend all my time not being able to blame my surroundings because they were changing. The only person who could take responsibility for my own healing and for getting through this was me. And it, that, that year of travel allowed me to do that. And which country did you do? Oh, I was in uh, Mal Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Portugal, Mexico, Canada, Chile, Argentina, and then like oh. a variety of side trips, you know, like I took a road trip through Bosnia and the Balkans. <laughs> yeah, just like vacation, right? Uh, I mean, I was working too. So it was a, it was a work. Um, well, I mean, I had quit, I had owned a bakery in New York. I, I quit my bakery. So I was dealing with that and I was trying to transition my life, but, um, it is not, I, I will not call it a vacation. It was, it was one of the hardest years of my life simply because of the emotional work that I was doing. Um, it was also the most transformative and therefore best year of my life. But believe me, if you're going to travel around the world, I would not recommend doing it deep in antidepressant withdrawal. It's not a great way to see the world. <laughs> Yeah. After how long? How long were you gone? A year. Okay. And after how long during that 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 trip that you started feeling better? I started. I I, I call them nano glimmers. So I I felt like I was getting these little nano glimmers of of hope. Uh, the first big shift I had, like the really, really first big shift I had that made me believe that maybe this wasn't going to be permanent was in Prague. I was in the, my apartment in Prague in January. It was cold. Um, and I was just standing in this room, in the middle of this room. I was like, I, I think I was getting dressed after I took a shower and the sun came through and it was just like something just clicked. And all of a sudden I felt different. And, and it was, it, I don't think it was random. I had been doing almost a year of emotional work until then. So I think it was kind of just the pieces finally coming together. And it's like, I could kind of feel gratitude for the first time. You know, we always talk about gratitude and gratitude journals and all this stuff that I think is like really well intentioned, but ultimately bullshit. If you can't feel it, like 
it's very easy to write down what you're grateful for and not feel it at all. It's not going to help you, right? You have to be able to feel it. And I think that was the first time that I really felt it for real. And from there, I was able, because I'd felt it once, I could feel it a second time and I started to recognize it and work on it and seek it out. And then that momentum started to build. So by the time I hit the last country I was in was Uruguay, I felt just completely transformed. And like the person that I had left a year before was not, not at all relevant to who I was anymore. And I changed my whole life after that. I moved out of my apartment in New York. I, I sold my business. I, I said, I'm, I'm done with this. Like none of this is what I, it's not who I am anymore. So I left it all started over. Wow. And you said you're in Nevada right now, right? So you decided to move as well. Uh, yeah. So I'm in Nevada now. I grew up here and I just, I didn't, I spent, I moved from New York when I got back um, from my year of travel to Vancouver, Canada. And I was there for three years and I was there through most of the, most of the pandemic. I only came back because I, you know, I said the pan pandemic has clarified things for me. And one of the things that clarified was that I wanted to be closer to my family because I don't have a lot of family and it's just me and my mom. And so I just felt very silly being far away from her when I have the ability to work wherever I want in the world. And uh, so I wanted to be closer and that's been just such a soul hugging experience just to be able to be with my favorite person whenever I want going to have dinner with her after this. And so she, and, and so I understand that she's really close by. Yeah. About 15 minutes away now. <laughs> wow. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. Um, what, you know, what would you say, you know, because it, we, we pretty much, you know, like we're, we're almost in a generation where we see quite the opposite right now, right? You know, like the, the, mm -hmm. the crutch of antidepressant is almost, um, instantaneous, right? You know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's, I remember like even 15 years ago, you know, like the, the, I, before going in therapy for uh it was mostly for alcohol and weed um mm -hmm. i remember going to the family doctor and he wanted to put me on some it's ativant which is like the the like an opioid Ad so ativan is a gnarly drug it, it is but i remember i go there and i say well i think i drink too much i think i, I smoke too much weed blah blah blah, blah. and i i go out of the doctor's office with that advent um prescription mm -hmm. and for some weird reasons i looked at the prescription and just was thinking it doesn't make any sense you know like something doesn't add up you know like i i can't you know i can't be with you know like kind of the intention of you know quitting one drug and being yeah. prescribed another, you know, like it doesn't make yeah. any sense, you know, like, so, so I, I remember that, you know, like, um, one of my best friend's wife, his father was, was huge on pills, you know, like, so <laughs> I remember calling her and saying, what is your dad taking again? And she's like, well, there's this and that. And then she mentioned adamant and I'm like, really? And so she's like, Ooh, and I explained my thing and she's like, well, how much has he prescribed you? You know, like, what's the dosage? And so I read the prescription 
And she's guy, she goes like, holy shit, he wants to knock you down. They had my dad on Ativan while he was dying. Yeah. To keep, it, that's one of the drugs he was on to make sure that he didn't like wake up. <laughs> yeah. It, it, and it's an opioid, right? So, and she was like, well, actually what my guess is that is hypothesis is that if you're knocked out, you won't drink or smoke. You know, I'm like, well, that's a weird theory, which is probably right, but it doesn't solve anything. Right. Um, well, 16, 15, 16 years later, it's almost much, it's almost quicker. If you go meet with your family doctor, if you go meet with your doctor and say, well, I'm not feeling too good, bam, you know, like you're, you're absolutely a hundred percent going, coming out with, um, an antidepressant prescription, mm -hmm. right? You know, like, um, how, there know, are a lot of reasons for that. There are a lot of reasons for that that are all converging all at once. My sense of it is that we're going to see something similar to the benzodiazepine kickback. That it's going to reach a point where people are like, oh, oh, wait, we finally realized this is a problem. And now, you know, the regulations are starting to be put in place. I think that's probably what's going to happen here. Um, as well, but at the end of the day, it's because people feel like they don't have tools and that, that goes for individuals and it goes for, uh, practitioners and behavioral health specialists. You know, they reach a point where, you know, a psychology textbook only goes so far. And if it doesn't help people in the end, well, what other option do they think, do they, they have? And so I think that's kind of the prevailing, the prevailing issue for most people, um, and so from my perspective, I, I'm just really encouraged by a lot of the more alternative and holistic uh, types of therapies that are, you know, I think we're, we're waylaid for a while because we were so focused on science, which, you know, I'm all about, I love research and it's a very important part of our, our healing as a, and our progression as a species. But there's also a lot of things we've been doing for a really long time that, worked in the past that kind of got pushed by the wayside. Um, a good example is breathwork, right? Like there's been, you know, communities of people all around the world who've been doing, using breathwork techniques uh, for, for generations. And now that's coming back as if it is a new thing. It's not, we've been doing it for a really long time, but you can use your breath to control your state of mind. Uh, you can actually use your eyes to control your state of mind. And so these are these are things that we've kind of lost. It's almost like we've lost, we've forgotten how to be an animal. We've forgotten how to have instincts because we're so distracted by everything else. And I do see overall, I think that that push towards our animalistic nature is actually starting to filter back into the equation. And I, I, I think if we can be open to that, it, it's part of the answer. It's, it's connection to the earth and finding meaning in our life. And that to me is the answer. And uh, I'm glad to see that there are a lot of people who are realizing that. And, you know, I, there's also a lot of people who aren't, but it's, it's a huge step in the right direction that didn't exist even five, six years ago. How did you decide, you know, like you said, you decided to kind of give back and, you know, not only through sharing your story, but, you know, by other means, um, you know, like how, you know, like what was your, or what is your plan, you know, like in terms of, you know, like kind of, um, 
teaching or enlightening the people about you know like alternatives to that's so you know like that easy button pill right yeah well the 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 most meaningful thing that i have done and am doing right now is i wrote a book and i basically wrote the book that i wish i'd had during that time um and it's going to be coming out in may of 2022 so i'm very excited about that because i have you know given up a lot of my life and my work life and whatnot in order to write this book that, you know, I didn't really, I didn't need to do it for myself, right? This is, this is purely for other people. I mean, it's a little self-serving in some standpoint because I get a lot of people who email me. I've, you know, had pieces published on this and sorry, my dog is, wants to go out. Um, But I've had pieces published on this and I get so many emails that there's, it gets to be a point where you've got, where you say like, I've got to figure out a way to reach more people all at once because I can't keep responding to all these emails because I will never pay a bill ever again. Um, and so I need to, I need to do my job. So, uh, part of it was for that. Um, it also was just to show people that there is a way to heal from this and that, you know, you've got to, you've got to have hope in order to believe that you can heal from depression. And I think that's one of the main things missing from the narrative. We're very good at giving hope to people with cancer or, physical diseases, we're not so great at giving hope to people who are diagnosed with uh, any sort of mental condition. And I think it's really short-sighted to think that if you're diagnosed with depression at 15, you're never going to get better. It's just like, I don't understand how that narrative happened, but it did. Oh my God, dog. Sorry. Um, and (laughs) so, and so my, my goal is to get this book out into the world. And I'm really, uh, I'm really focused on talking with behavioral health professionals and prescribers about this because like I said, I don't fault them for not knowing everything they can. They have so much to manage um, as it is. They have so much to manage as it is. Um, It's impossible to know what happens with every drug, but if they can get an idea of what it's like for their patients to go through this, they're going to be a lot more open to understanding the process and also to, you know, um, maybe, maybe a little bit more mindful and just handing out the scripts. But really for me, it's about safety prescribing. It's about teaching people, including behavioral health professionals, like how to take people off these drugs slowly. It's about promoting the research. It's about just having, starting to have the conversation of, okay, like if we're going to put you on these drugs, okay. But we also need to like, with that conversation, talk about how to get you off them because I think it's just absurd that people, including myself, was on the same set of drugs from 15 to 30. That was never once was never once adjusted. No one ever suggested that maybe it needed to be changed or that maybe the same set of drugs that I was on when I was 15 and a teenager just entering puberty was not the same set of drugs I should be on when I was 30 and an adult. The, f- the fact that none of those conversations happened um, just lights a fire under, under me and I... <laughs> just want people to start talking about it. I don't expect to change the world. I don't expect these drugs to go away. I don't expect laws to be changed, but just by talking about it and by, you know, bringing awareness in the right circles, that can be a, we could save so many people from going through what I went through. And just challenging it, you know, like just, just yeah. asking the question and challenging it, you know, like that's kind of almost the minimum. Brooke, I want to, I don't want your dog to pee on the floor. I, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I will also want to thank you so much for uh, being part of that journey. Uh, for me, it's just a—it's uh, humbling, and um, 
I learned so much every week. You know, like it's uh, just phenomenal. Um, the last thing I'm going to ask you is where can people find you, Brooke? Yeah, so you can find me. Um, it's all the same name, Brooke Seam, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M. So it's brookseam.com, at brookseam on Instagram, at brookseam on Twitter, though I don't really tweet very much. It's not my favorite. Um, uh, so that's, yeah, that's how you people can find me. And then my book is called May Cause Side Effects, and it'll be out in May 2022. Still a bit early at this point to like, you know, for pre-orders and whatnot, but maybe by the time this airs, it'll be available. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, the, um, th- all of these links and, uh, you know, like everywhere we can find Brooke is going to be found in the description of the episode. So, you know, like no need to pause and no need to have Bella wait to go outside. So, um, thank you so much, Brooke really was appreciated. Um, yeah, had a blast, you know, like I, I, I love the kind of side conversation and I love the, you know, like your life story is inspiring. And, um, I encourage everyone to whatever happens in your life, challenge it, question mm-hmm. it. You know, and, you know, you're a great example of that. So thanks again, Brooke. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alex. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.